0: And I'd like to talk, talk with you about a side of the practice we call developing concentration. And the old Indian word for concentration is samadhi. So i would talk a little bit tonight about developing samadhi or concentration, <clears throat> especially when doing loving-kindness practice. There'd be many reasons to do loving-kindness practice, and we've talked about some of them, and there's the healing side of doing the practice. So coming here for nine days, just looking to heal the heart. <clears throat> it's also developing loving-kindness so that the, the, it's more accessible, it's more uh, powerful. And That might be a motivation Then there's sort of cleaning up your love so it's not got these little barbs and complexities to it. Not only is it powerful, but it feels like it's coming from a more pure place inside. We can also practice loving kindness to release old habits of defensiveness. So it's another part of purifying the heart, but letting the heart be strong enough that we don't have to go into old habits. So there are many reasons that people would come to retreat like this, many motivations, and many things that would um, come about as a benefit of being here. And one of the things that is developing here, whether you know it or not, is your own concentration, your own samadhi. But I know it doesn't feel like that. So maybe for a few of you, you've had validating experiences. They came and they went, and you're hoping to have them again, and for some of you, uh, being very concentrated, um, if you had to uh, assess your own experience, you might not feel that you've been very concentrated this entire retreat. So I want to talk a little bit about that, about um, your own experience being on the retreat, what's happening here, and that um, I'm actually pretty sure that all of you have developed actually a lot more concentration than you might be aware of. When I go to use the word uh, concentration for samadhi, I actually don't like it so much. Um, But it's become sort of the default word that we use. And one of the things I don't like about concentration is that until I had developed samadhi, um, I was using the word concentration. And for me, it felt a little bit too aggressive, a little bit too assertive, Um, trying to concentrate my mind. I understood the working side of that uh, word. How do I get more concentrated? So there might be a few uh, old Indian words that you would learn tonight, and hopefully one of them would be samadhi. Because samadhi is a little bit more than just concentration or focus. When samadhi arises in practice, there's actually a beautiful sense of well-being. And it's one part well-being and one part focus. So that gets... um, held by this word samadhi. And when we use the word concentration, you have, to work, you have to be careful that you don't see the more the focus side of it and that more kind of um, assertive aspect of the mind to focus and miss out on the very beautiful side of samadhi which is the healing side of when the mind is stable and gathered. So it has these two aspects, samadhi. It has a type of well-being and a type of focus. And what's happening in samadhi, what's happening in concentration, is that um, our minds are usually scattered and kind of restless. There's so many things to think about, keep track of, so many stimulations coming in, and we have to think about the past, the present, and the future. And then we have to think about abstract things, like math, <laughs> and we have to keep it all straight in our minds. And to do that, our minds are very busy. So it's like 10,000 gerbils running on 10,000 squeaky wheels trying to keep track of all the things you're supposed to keep track of. And you could say that in samadhi, um, there's one gerbil running on one wheel. (laughs) And every now and then it just relaxes. Um, So it's it's a type of unification of mental activity. And we all, one of the things I want to say about this word samadhi and concentration is that as I talk about it, you might feel, I can't wait till that happens, or I've been waiting for that to happen. What I say is you actually already have samadhi, and it's not about something you don't have yet, it's about strengthening a factor you already have. If you didn't have some focus of mind, some internal well-being, some wholeness of your attention, there's no way you could drive a car, there's no way you could walk through a door. You'd be thinking about too many things and you'd hit the mid-post you know, half the time. So you already have some ability to gather your attention and to focus it. And so on retreat, we're actually getting into what might be tasted as uh, non-ordinary concentration, non-ordinary samadhi, something that's heightened from our everyday life. But it's an improving upon something you already have versus... There's something out there I've never experienced. Don't like, know what it is, but it sounds great. And one day I will get it. That way of thinking actually is not very helpful. Like a lot of these practices, <clears throat> it's helpful if you actually tune into experiences you've already had and from there develop them, like with loving kindness, versus trying to bring something from the outside in. All these things are actually in us. We need to recognize them and then help cultivate them so they're stronger than they might be ordinarily. So we all have an ability to focus, and we all have some wholeness of our attention. That's, again, a human mind just wouldn't work if there wasn't some capacity. And that what will happen is that there will be different waves, there will be different waves where the conditions are right, that your attention feels very whole, not distracted, you're not running some things in the back of your mind, actually giving something your full attention. There are probably things that you love to do already that really hold your full attention. Some people get into a type of samadhi when they play music, uh, when they dance, when they do uh, athletic um, sports. Something that has already pulled your full attention, that's already a type of samadhi. I'm using samadhi in kind of a broad sense even when you're practicing here and <clears throat> you may not particularly notice it but please do look for it when the whole of your heart is behind one metaphrase and there isn't a there isn't a background commentary and you're not straining too much because your mind wants to be elsewhere but every now and then you get to say one sincere phrase and your whole heart means it. That's a moment of samadhi. It's a moment where there's a wholeness of attention and a type of intrinsic well-being. There are many ways to practice samadhi. Our tradition that comes from Burma, Thailand, and Sri Lanka in its modern-day version, there are 40 classical meditation techniques, and then many variations within them. There are many ways to practice and cultivate samadhi, concentration. For a lot of people, uh, feeling the breath is a very common way to develop samadhi and concentration. And then this form of loving kindness that we're doing, repeating the phrases, stabilizing an image, trying to settle the heart, gather the heart, aim the heart, day in and day out. This is known as one of the Um, the classical central way is to develop samadhi. So while you're also practicing loving-kindness to heal your heart, to strengthen love, you've also been developing samadhi. And I'm going to talk a little bit tonight about how to do that more intentionally, how the Buddha talked about it and how it's held in our tradition. Just in case you're interested in it and you want to um, practice with that intention, you want to explore samadhi concentration as a part of metta practice, <clears throat> and it would be aiming for a very whole, settled attention. So that you might say the loving-kindness phrases and you find a pacing and in a way you can relax into that and give yourself over just to saying the phrases, feeling the loving-kindness, simplifying your attention and focusing in one direction. So we've all been doing that all along. That's been part of the, the intent of the practice but you might notice that you're actually also doing this, cultivating your attention, focusing it, and stabilizing it. So one thing that um, is true is that um, it's very hard for each one of us to measure how deep our samadhi is in an intensive retreat. Because being intimate with your own experience, what you're feeling are the waves of up and down. You're feeling you were there for two phrases, 10 phrases, 50 phrases, and then you were distracted for some time. And so often by our own subjective measuring, we feel like it's been choppy the whole time. And what you don't have a measure for is that you've all been on quiet retreat and so there's been a, a tide rising in the background. For you it feels like being on a merry-go-round where the horse goes up and down, up and down, there've been all these waves. But what's actually hard to feel into is that um, there's been a gentle tide rising since the moment we got here. I used to live on the shore of the Puget Sound <clears throat> and the, uh, there aren't automatically waves in the Puget Sound, there's so many islands. And so you could be out on a rowboat um, and sitting there for hours and not ever know that the tide was rising. And if you were far enough from shore, you couldn't even see that the water was creeping up the shoreline. But when you came in, you would say, oh my God, the, the tide is, rose four feet. And I never even felt it because it was just a slow, steady rising. But if like a powerboat would drive by, you'd feel the waves, you'd feel the ripples And so you'd be measuring yourself, calm, wave, calm, wave. But if you're far from the shore, you never really feel um, how much the tide has risen. You will feel how much the tide has risen the moment you walk down the hill and start your car. And you suddenly feel every vibration and you hear every noise. And that will be the first time you touch the shore and you realize how high the tide has risen. But on retreat, it's very difficult to measure that. And so that leads to a lot of doubt. I've already received a few, uh, a few SOS notes, like, ah, it's not working, I'm not developing any saladi. I'm actually sure that you are. But I know that, having been uh, a student on retreat before. There have been many times where my own subjective experience is, this isn't working. I'm just as crazy as the day I came. <laughs> <clears throat> In fact, sometimes I'm worried I'm losing it. <laughs> I'm like, it's crazier. It's possible that there are waves that are crazier than your everyday life, but it's also that you're a lot more intimate and you can really feel your heart and your mind more than you would in everyday life. So you're feeling the waves, but it's... it's we don't recommend it, but if you happen to just walk down to the road and look in the eye of anybody who hasn't been on retreat, you would see what an ordinary mind looks like. <laughs> and it's a little bit... <clears throat> It's a little bit like a bird that flies, and the head just keeps turning. <laughs> when I was doing long retreats, <clears throat> there'd be this moment where about half the students would leave, and half would come in, and I would stay on. And I wouldn't think I was that deep until I saw uh, someone drive up, get out of the taxi, have their suitcases, and start looking at the board, trying to read it. I was like, oh my god, look at your head turn. Like, <laughs> Your brain's got to fall out. Calm down, calm down. And that was one indicator. I would have thought that I was just as crazy as the day I came. But when I saw a real crazy person, which (laughs) which is normal, you can just see the agitation that we take for normal. And none of you feel that in all the interviews that we get to see you in. We get to see a steady heart and mind looking back out through your eyes, and you're navigating. You're navigating the waves. But you might not actually be appreciating uh, how much the tide has risen over the last few days. It's just difficult to measure it. So, <clears throat> with enough experience, you can feel, you get to know what samadhi feels like. And then you, you don't have to ask the teachers for a dipstick check, or <laughs> you don't have to um, you know, contrast yourself with a worldly mind. Um, you get to f- feel the the wholeness of your being, the wholeness of your heart. And yeah, there are waves, but there's a general sense of collectedness. So um, hopefully you can feel that. And then that can be reassuring that this is one thing that is developing as you practice. So there's a general sort of sneaky samadhi that kind of like slowly comes over the days here. And then there's samadhi that you might actually notice. There's concentration where you might notice it was different. The waves really seemed to calm down for a moment. And I was tuning into this one person and the image was clear. The phrases were rolling. My heart felt collected and it really stood out. But that was actually... Um, there, was a, there was a focus there, there was a well-being, there was a, a steadiness to my attention, steadiness to my heart. And usually it feels good, and so we might in, um, not only enjoy it, but actually start to hope that that's the new normal. And really what it is, that samadhi ripens. It's a capacity that ripens out of conditions, but it's also affected by conditions. So it tends to arise and it tends to fade And then another wave of samadhi comes, it rises, and it fades. The rising of samadhi or concentration is a great benefit because um, you are uh, making your mind a little more powerful and sometimes a lot more powerful than in daily life. So you can really feel what a pure channel of loving kindness feels like because that's the one thing that's actually happening in your heart. It's also really good for your heart, mind, and body to feel unified, to not be running discordant energy, to be running restlessness or fragmentation. So it's good for your your brain, it's good for your nervous system, it's good for your organs, it's good for your skin, your nails, your teeth. It's good for everything. <laughs> to feel that type of intrinsic settledness and uh, well-being. And it's also good for wisdom's sake to see that it comes and it goes. One thing we all wish, and it's very hard not to wish this, is that samadhi is where we get to live. We get to live wholeheartedly. We so badly want that to become the new normal. And samadhi is helpful because you taste it. You get to taste your own wholeness. You get to taste your own healthy heart and mind. But with samadhi alone, with concentration alone, often what has happened is that all the agitations, the angers, the fragmentation has just gone to quietude. It's gone uh, dormant. And it really takes uh, liberation by wisdom, by seeing through the forces that agitate us so we let go of those forces, that we do get to live wholeheartedly or more wholeheartedly but the first tastes of samadhi begin to show you what's possible. It's a bit like the uh, Holy Grail. You get to see it, but then you're on the quest trying to actually make a long-term contact. So samadhi can be that first taste of your own sacred heart, your own beautiful inner world. And to know that your own world could be beautiful is a game changer because until you know that, It's it's more easily to be seduced to think that happiness is external. It will come when my external world is such that I finally get to feel peaceful inside. When you feel this concentration, this samadhi arising from within, you get to know for yourself that your greatest happiness is ultimately born from within. It needs support for it to be born from within. But once it is born from within, there's a wholeness, there's a completeness that arises in samadhi. And I just couldn't capture that feeling with the word concentration. So it's a default word and we use it a lot. It's sort of the way that concentration, saying that when it's actually a wholeness of heart, a wholeness of being. Um, so I recommend that you learn this one word There are a couple other old Indian words to learn tonight, but samadhi is one of them. Does that work if I say this word samadhi instead of concentration? Okay, I'll try to go back and forth between the two, but hopefully we'll get a feeling of this word samadhi. In 1998, I got to live in Burma for a year. I got to practice in two different monasteries with two different teachers and two very different Buddhist traditions. But, um, so the first was with a monk named Saida Upandita, and he was known um, to be a very, uh, he had a, a very effortful, courageous way of practicing. And so he believed in concentration, he believed in samadhi, but it came through uh, an incredible tour de force of will to focus your mind and to subdue um, all, if your mind wandered, you had to subdue it, which was the language he used a lot. And I found that I could only hold my mind still with effort for so long before um, it would buck and kick and it would wander and then I get all tired of just the willful approach to samadhi. And then I had a chance to go to another monastery in the Pauk, a monastery in southern Burma, and that was a monastery where they um, would take years, if needed, be to develop samadhi before they would do um, other types of meditation. And so they were they were um, they were really good at it. They had studied it. They had practiced it. People in the monastery were very oriented to developing samadhi as its own practice and doing months of loving kindness practice like we're doing or breathing meditation. So I got to be around um, just incredible practitioners who'd put a lot of time in. And they taught me a way into samadhi that wasn't so assertive. It wasn't such a a willpower activity. It was more about relaxing, letting go, and uh, finding ease that brought about a wholeness of heart. And that, that was much more accessible to me. And when, when samadhi finally arose, when concentration arose, through developing ease and letting go of distractions versus trying to conquer my attention with will, um, the samadhi that arose was much larger and deeper and more pervasive. So I wanna share a little bit about um, things that they taught me there in terms of developing concentration and samadhi and then bring this together with loving kindness practice so one of the great things about the Buddha is not only did he become free but he also had something like an engineer's mind it wasn't just enough to get free and get profoundly free he had a lot of insight into how our minds work like different components inside psychological factors and he took the time to actually study how minds work and what the factors are in them and how they work together to either get us caught, like studying the way that craving and clinging creates a tight sense of self, for example. also developed samadhi, very deep samadhi, and he studied how it happened. He studied the factors. And so if you go in and, and strengthen certain factors inside it's more likely that concentration will arise. It's more likely that samadhi will arise. And so we boiled it down to five central factors that help concentration develop. And then there are a lot of supportive factors, but there are these five. And so if you're intentionally doing concentration practice, you want to look at these five factors inside, get to know them and see if you can cultivate them first one by one and then see if you can blend them together. And when these five factors of mind arise together, that's usually a very profound sense of concentration, a very profound sense of samadhi. These are five more old Indian words, old Pali words. Pali is the language of the Buddha, very close to it. So you have these five words and then I'll give you their English uh, counterparts. And these are the five factors that when you practice them, bring about samadhi. They're called vitaka, vichara, piti, sukha, and ekagata. Okay, You don't have to remember those, but just so you got exposed to them. I want to at least expose you. So this first word, uh, vitaka, is the ability not just to point your attention in a different directions, but to almost sort of lean in. It's a a way of not only looking at something or taking something with your attention, but sort of brightening it so that it holds your attention. It's a little more firm in the moment. So you could look around this room, but pick one thing to look at, and then really take it in, any one feature through your eyes. Settle on one thing, and then really take it in. So you can all do that. You can all do that. You move your attention around, settle it someplace, and then really take it in. That's this first factor called vitaka. We often call that aiming, aiming the mind, or plying the mind, applying the heart. And that's necessary to bring about concentration. Otherwise, we make very weak connection as we look around or the attention sort of wanders around and it doesn't end up gathering attention. You have to sort of apply a connection, deepen a connection in the moment. That's the first uh, factor, vitaka. The second factor is vichara. And that's called sustaining. So not only do you take something in, but you intend to stay with it. And there'll be these little forces like a sound might distract you or a thought might distract you. But you not only take something in, you get loyal to what you're taking in. You get steady to what you're taking in. And That's the second factor that ends up bringing about concentration called vichara, you have vitaka vichara. These two are the efforting side of concentration. You take something in and you stabilize your attention and you've all been doing that. You choose your metaphrases. you choose your image, you take it in and you try to sustain it for as long as possible. So you've already been using these two. These are the two workhorses of concentration, vitaka vichara. The third factor called piti, P-I-T-I, is an energetic factor that arises from within. Sometimes it's translated as delight, delight in the mind. There's also delight the in the body, where you feel subtle sensations. You feel a bubbling up from within. You feel an aliveness, an awakeness. It's an uplifting characteristic. Pt. You all can. I have felt pt before when you've taken interest in something. So you no longer have to work to be connected. The very connection is enthralling. It's intriguing. There's enthusiasm. This is pt arising. PT arising in the mind, the mind gets brighter. The heart uh, expands a little bit, gets a little more energetic. The body feels lighter, also feels a little more energetic. There's a waking up quality with PT. PT can also come about if you drink caffeine. (laughs) (laughs) So our culture has a big love of this PT. And it's sort of if you're feeling dull and you have whatever your caffeine is and you feel that waking, you feel that lightness in your mind, and you can focus. A little bit of caffeine, you can focus. You can also have too much PT, and too much PT is like, it's too energetic, it's too delighted, it's too uplifted, and actually is no longer delighting. The delighting part of it peaks, and then more of the kind of the energetic, restless, buzzy side of it. One time I was uh, working with some homeless kids, a in an education program and this one kid came in and he had eight shots of espresso in a cup and he said, we're gonna learn so much today. And <laughs> I was like, I can either stop you or we could learn something here about espresso. <laughs> <laughs> and we might only have to do this once, so go ahead. And I'm gonna put the math lesson aside or at least my expectations of it. And he started drinking it and he did get cheery, he did get talkative, he was finding it interesting, math interesting. And then there was a point where his it just he couldn't hold it together anymore. And he was thinking about it, but it like it was no longer making sense, and his mind got really kind of buzzy. And he, I think he only had like a third of it. <laughs> and he looked in his cup, it was like we're done. It's like good, okay, we learned something today. There is something about too much PT. But there is a sweet point in PT arising where our bodies often can feel dull or tired, lethargic, kind of uh, dense. And then when PT arises, it actually, you feel good circulation in your body, feel some tingling, feel some optimism. That would be a sign of PT bubbling up. The fourth factor of concentration of samadhi is called sukha. And suka is also pleasant, but it's a little more settling than piti. Sukha is cooling. It tends to be like, ah. <sighs> so it has this word, suka, and it has the same Indo-European word as our word, sugar. The SU of sugar and the SU of suka have the same. So it's the sugar of the mind, which also is kind of buzzy, but it's more about the sweetness than the energetic quality. And so you all have experienced sukha. And if we went around and said, where do you feel the most content? And where is that sort of like the sweet point in life where you relax and feel really content? For me, it's often uh, late in the afternoon at a beach, feeling you know, the, the waves come in and sort of a well-being comes over me. And I could sit there for hours. And I, it's not necessarily energizing, but it's very settling, it's very soothing. There's a type of well-being that comes. Secretly, it's my favorite of these factors. (laughs) I love sukha, I do like piti, piti can be agitating, but sukha uh, is very soothing, it's a soothing factor of heart and mind. And it's necessary for bringing about samadhi and concentration. And then the last of these factors, the concentration factors, it's called ekagata, and ek means one, and agata, uh, I think, means um, mind. So it's one-pointedness. And when ekagata is strong, your attention is stable in and of itself, not because you're attending it to be stable. It just is naturally a stable. And this is one that, that it takes the longest for it to ripen into a, its own full factor, so until ekgata is ripened and strong, we need the support of the first two factors, we vichara, to pick something and stay with it intentionally. But when this fifth factor begins to arise, your mind actually really likes to, has the quality of being still, has the quality of being whole and stable. It just takes a while for this fifth factor to ripen and come around. It's there, it's there in all mind moments because we usually can take one thing up at a time. And that's because we do have this innate quality that the mind isn't really thinking of two things at once. It's just moving quickly between things, but the mind really only holds one thing at once. That's because of this intrinsic factor of ekagata. But it can ripen and become so strong that your mind feels like it's, um, it's like a four-legged table that doesn't wobble, it's just, you could put some weight on it, and it's actually really stable. And that's this is fifth factor. These five factors, um, I'm calling them the factors that lead to samadhi or concentration. In our tradition, they're called jhana factors. So I'm going to introduce your seventh word. There's samadhi. I went through five uh, Indian words around the concentration factors. But I do want to talk about this other word, which is called jhana, J-H-A-N-A. And jhana is an experience that is um, beyond everyday concentration when you really have notable concentration, notable focus, notable stability. That we call jhana, that we call absorption. And that can get increasingly strong. In fact, they say there's no upper limit to how much a human mind can develop an absorption in what's happening. So if you've been practicing, you might have already tasted absorptions and not necessarily known it, but you might have been absorbed for a minute in loving kindness, and you're just like, wow, this is really good, stayed with it, and I wasn't too distracted. But that would be hard to do in everyday life without a distracting thought, to have that much concentration. That's the arising of what we call absorption. When you're absorbed in something, you can be absorbed in a good book. You could call that a type of jhana, but it's also sort of everyday concentration. When you start going on a residential retreat like this and you start to feel the possibility at times of sinking really wholeheartedly without any conflicting thoughts, your whole heart is in what it's doing. Loving kindness practice, for example, or compassion practice, forgiveness practice, or mudita, when you're really celebrating, as John offered earlier, when you're really in that celebration and joy heart and contemplating somebody else's well-being, and you're not distracted, you're absorbed in that moment. And the absorptions get stronger and stronger. So these five factors that I mentioned earlier, technically they're called jhana factors or absorption factors. And these are the five factors that if you want to know this sort of wholeheartedness and absorption, these are the five that you cultivate intentionally. That said, you don't actually have to know these. You can just do the practice as we've described it, and you'll be ripening these factors anyhow. So you don't have to get too worried that you have to remember them. But if you wanted to be more intentional about it, and if you have a, a curiosity about Um, how your mind is working and why is it absorbing? What could you do to develop and strengthen your loving kindness practice in terms of samadhi or concentration? These would be the factors to look at. When I went to the the second monastery, okay, I went to the first monastery with uh, this Burmese monk Upandita. He was all about the first two of these factors because he was he was a warrior, so he said, you just aim and sustain, aim and sustain, and one day this joy is going to overcome you. And that didn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) I was so aiming and so sustaining that I got kind of agitated and tight around it, but he promised me one day I would feel a lot of delight. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then one day this this, loving, this sukha was going to arise mystically like a unicorn coming out of the, the rainbow. And I got a little sukha, but not a lot. But boy, was I an aimer and sustainer. <laughs> when I went to the second monastery where they cultivated a lot of samadhi, they said, of these five factors, which ones do you feel you have access to and which ones don't you? And I was like, well, I have access to the first two and not the other three. And they said, you should intentionally cultivate them. Don't just cultivate two of them see if you can cultivate all five of them and then bring them together. So I began, well, how would I cultivate PT? It was just going to come to me one day, like a download, but how would I go about doing that? It was like, well, how do you, how do you refresh an inside so that you're delighted in your loving-kindness practice? This is actually, I'm going to tell you this, and then it's up to you, but you need to renew your delight in the practice. You can't do it all the time. You can't force it upon yourself, but know how to recover a sense of delight. That said, waves will come where you'll get tired and the practice will feel heavy. So you can't automatically do it, but you can intentionally, every day, recover your purpose, recover your inspiration, recover your enthusiasm for doing this practice. So it's something that you can actually intentionally cultivate Also, you can practice in a way that there's more sukha. Practice in a way where you're not grinding away, trying to get somewhere, and then feeling tired and defeated, but practice in a way where there's more innate contentment here and now. When I got to the the second monastery, the Pauk monastery, I started hearing about this incredible nun named Sister Dipankara, and months before I met her, I heard legend of her and I heard incredible things and it turns out she was one of the most phenomenal meditators in our day in terms of concentration and probably one of the most incredible concentrators in our tradition, her ability to to go deeply into samadhi. Later when I asked her if she um, liked to read the Buddhist discourses, she said, no, I tend to just use the powers of my concentration to remember my past lives. When I was the half-sister of the Buddha and I heard the discourses directly. <laughs> mm, that would be nice. <laughs> wow, well, direct access. So <clears throat> she had incredible powers of mind. And so um, I was a monk at the time and it's just very complicated having they're very binary in their gender. And so setting up a meeting between a monk and a nun has to have a whole formality around it. And it took a while to do it, but I finally got to meet her. And she was so humble and kind of um, present. And I was expecting like rays of light to come off. And I'd be like, wow. But she was very approachable. And so I was telling her, like I knew how to work hard and practice, but I didn't feel like I was getting anywhere or it felt very slow. And I told her that I was I knew about the working side of practice, but didn't know anything about the contentment. And she said, oh, that's very important. She said, I don't ever work hard until I feel contentment. Because if I'm working hard without contentment, what's my motivation? Like in that heart, the heart that's not content, it would be striving, trying to get somewhere. The heart would be discontent and working hard. She said, I try my best to feel contentment and then... I try to focus my mind, and that was a game changer. I mean, she didn't slap me across the face, but she might have, because I was expecting this download one day, and she said, no, no, make that an early part of your practice. Learn how to be content. Learn how to be content here. Learn to look around and enjoy the wood of the room. Learn to look out the window, take in the beauty of nature, and then you'll feel this sort of, It's good to be here. And if you have any degree of contentment, if you can welcome contentment, your mind isn't looking elsewhere, and your mind doesn't wander as much. So when you have this underlying contentment, you'll find that your mind is more willing to be present. But if you're practicing without contentment, then it's hard because your mind doesn't want to be here. It's going to leak out elsewhere looking for happiness. So see if you can actually... Cultivate it over the days of more content way of being here. So with her advice, I began practicing contentment. I began renewing my inspiration of being on the path. And then I began to focus it, aiming and sustaining my attention, using these five factors in a blended way. Not putting two first, hoping the others would come later, but learning to... Know all five of them and welcome them forward. Can I take up one thing instead of ten? Can I have this one focus of mind? Can I apply my attention and sustain it over time? Can I be delighted and uplifted from within? And can I balance that with a type of settledness? Sukha, without the piti, you're very content and you tend to get a little drifty in the contentment piti, without the sukha, tends to be excited but not very settled. And so you can blend these two. It's a sort of a sweet, relaxed brightness. That's when you're bringing sukha and piti together. You have relaxed brightness of heart and mind, and then you focus it in a way that, that's important to you. And here we're doing loving-kindness phrases, or compassion phrases, or mudita. You have several options of where you're going to point your attention. But see if you can blend this inner well-being of piti, this inner delight of piti, the inner well-being of sukha. See if you can be satisfied with one endeavor, one simple endeavor. I'm just here to say phrases. I'm not here to solve all the world's problems. I'm here to think of one person I care about. And I'm here to wish them well in one moment. And the next moment I wish them well. And I find this very satisfying. It's humble, it's simple. Just wishing someone well with the wholeness of my heart. That leads to metta samadhi, metta absorption, the willingness to be absorbed into loving kindness practice. <clears throat> There are some tips I'd like to offer in terms of loving-kindness practice and samadhi. Due to the way our, our ordinary minds work, we can't help but think about gaining samadhi or getting samadhi. It's just the way we work. We tend to have minds that are oriented in terms of achievement and owning. But samadhi actually comes about not by pursuing it, it comes about by letting go of everything else. Real samadhi arises, one, when you love what you're doing, but two, when you've really let go of other concerns. So if you make too much of a goal out of it, you'll find that it kind of slips away, like grabbing a bar of soap. If you grab your samadhi, it slips away. If you relax into it, you welcome it, let it come, let it go on its own, but you have a welcoming stance towards it. And you relax concerns, relax concerns for or against other activities, other times, other places. That allows your heart and mind to know wholeness, here and now. Later on, you can apply this samadhi to those other concerns. So you're temporarily letting go on a very deep level, but you get it all back you get it all back when your heart is whole and then you go to do anything and you have the wholeness of your heart which makes it very powerful versus I have so many things, I can't let go of any of them because I can't forget them all and then you're stressed and fragmented. So I recommend is a sort of a r- radical, radical release of everything that's not one phrase at a time. Not aggressively but sort of wholeheartedly Release other concerns. Release their draw. Release their their pull on your attention. Let go very deeply. And let go into relaxing into simple phrases with simple intentions. Giving yourself more fully over. So it, when I was uh, doing very deep practice, like you all are doing, there came a point where I would have these surrender these surrender moments. It's almost like loving kindness, take me. Take me, take all my past, all my future. Let it be the whole universe. Let it simplify into this one thing, this one sincere wish. I release it all. I release all other concepts, all other responsibilities, all other identities I give myself fully in this one endeavor to be a simple, kind heart wishing well for another. And I would, <clears throat> as I got more in that kind of surrender into frame of mind, the heart wasn't as fragmented, my heart wasn't as fragmented, and it got to be more whole. And then I'd have this little thing pop up like, yeah, but what about me? It's like, yeah, even you not now. We're bathing in loving kindness. We're soaking in loving kindness. Because over time, I'd learned if I can do that, then when I go to do anything else, write a letter, change a light bulb, do an errand, look in the eyes of someone who's scared, they get the fact that my heart is whole. So you make your heart whole, and then you apply it in diverse ways. But you have to let go of diversity and all these complex responsibilities to let it know wholeness, and then you get to apply your whole heart. It ends up being very powerful, and you end up being very productive in what you want to do, because you're doing it with your whole heart. So in the long run, you actually get it all back. But while you're here, and under these incredible conditions of being on a silent retreat, give yourself more permission than you've given so far, not to push things away, but release them. Invite yourself into simplicity. Invite yourself into an embodied relaxation and wholeheartedness to sincerely say one phrase at a time. And that was what, that's what a lot of the work is. Letting yourself be a little more trusting, a little more relaxed, a little more surrendered into the simplicity. And then you don't have to worry about what's coming five minutes from now or ten days from now. That will come, but when that moment comes, you'll have a whole heart to greet it. And that's a very different dynamic than if your mind is choppy or fragmented. It has taken me a long time to prove that to myself so that I relax more fully and then my mind is really willing to let go of all these little concerns that keep tugging on my attention. So you prove it to yourself over time. But one thing you can experiment with Is more fully relaxing and releasing. Samadhi, I'll tell a tiny story first. There's a sister center to Spirit Rock back in Massachusetts called Insight Meditation Society. And one of the first times I did a retreat there, halfway through, I was walking through the woods there, and this bird flew to a branch very near me. I was like, oh. And then it flew to an even closer branch. i like, it's getting closer to me. That's oh, never happened. It's a wild bird. I must be exuding, like a lot of calm. <laughs> i like, get really calm. And it flew to my shoulder. I'm like, it's beautiful. It's like, ah, oh, this is mystical. This is amazing. And what I'd learned is that somebody had actually trained birds over time by putting seed in their hand very patiently, holding out until so the birds actually trusted meditators. They could tell meditators because they walk around really calm. So the birds visit. But then they go also. And if you want the bird to stay, your energy changes, and the bird gets scared and flies away. And so one of the things a visiting bird teaches you is you hold your hand open with the bird seed, and you love the birds. And then they fly to your hand. They nibble and they fly away. And they see that you don't grab them, you don't take interest in them, you don't lock in on them it's like, actually it feels kind of safe and there's a lot of bird seed over there. So it hung, hangs on your hands, starts nibbling. You feel its little feet gripping your skin. It's like, wow, this is so cool. But you take too much interest in it and the bird feels that and it flies away. Same is true with samadhi. Yeah, okay. it's same is true with samadhi. It will come and visit you and it will go. And it will come and go. And we can't help but grip it because it's beautiful. So please, it's okay, we grip it. But over time we learn, don't grip it. Let it come, wash over you, you're wholehearted, it's a wave. And then you'll notice it lasts for as long as it can, you support it, you nourish it, you welcome it. But don't cling to it, don't grab onto it, don't try to plant a flag there. That usually will undermine it. And then it will go and then you'll get heartbroken and feel like retreat's over, you had your moments and it won't come back. Your mind's gotten choppy again. Why won't it stay there? And all that time, you're agitating yourself, clinging to something that really came because usually your, your invitation was very sincere. And what you learn over time is just keep inviting it. Don't chase it. Welcome your heart to be whole. And your heart will be whole, and then it will fragment. It will be whole, and it will be fragmented. And as you learn to let that process happen relaxing into the waves and the changes, it's more likely to visit. It's more likely to hang out. And so that's how you actually deepen samadhi over time is not by grabbing it or chasing it, by, sim- by purifying your invitation and your willingness for it to come and go and to invite it, but also let it, let it fade. That's, that's just the way that it works. It doesn't come to stay but it visits more often and it stays for longer. It just doesn't establish itself. The real establishment comes through another door, another meditation, that's called vipassana. And then where you clear out things so deeply that they don't hagger you, it's another talk for another time. But you can taste it, you can taste the samadhi, and it's by invitations. And it'll open for as long as it does. It'll open for 10 seconds, one minute, it'll open for an hour be graced by it, and then as it fades, be mature about it, let it fade, keep sincerely practicing, and you'll find that the conditions ripen and it comes again. And that's really where it became powerful in Burma when I had finally a lot more relaxation around it. I got tired of chasing it, tired of being the one who didn't have it, tired of being the one who did have it and then lost it, and then hoped to get it again and got it again but lost it again. And when that whole game got fatiguing, I was like, please come, please stay, but I'm no longer going to do this chasing, pursuing, identifying. I don't get it. Everybody else has got it. I finally relaxed that whole thing, and I found that it, it just came more often, and I stopped chasing and grabbing it. So I highly recommend that. Like all things that are beautiful in our lives, Clinging to it, chasing it, craving after it, often doesn't really allow it to arise. Yet there's still room for cherishing it in the right way, honoring it, welcoming it. Not, I don't care. I mean, do care, but don't cling. And samadhi is beautiful in the moment. It's good for your nervous system. It's good to know that type of well-being rising. When well-being arises from within, it can be a real game changer that you realize the greatest happiness you've ever known didn't come from an external event, but actually came when the heart and the mind were ripened. That's a big turning point in our tradition. You have to be patient for those things that happen, but when they do arise, they really convince you that you don't have to perfect your job or your partner or any external events, that they're all very supportive. Uh, But as Bonnie was saying, it's really this well-being inside that ends up being the most satisfying. And then when we're well inside, we're a great resource for others. Because we're not subtly or unconsciously manipulating them for the happiness we're always seeking outside of ourselves. There's intrinsic well-being. And when you have intrinsic well-being, you're of great benefit to others. The relationship gets really clean then because you are not have these unconscious manipulations. And then when you can rest fully, relaxed, there's well-being inside, you also can uh, stand to be really honest with life. When there's well-being inside, you can actually go into realms of life where you get exhausted and you can show up there more because you're plugged in inside, you're supported inside, which also then feeds into wisdom. It feeds into a greater intimacy with life because you're not tired within. You're not depleted within. Samadhi is a beautiful way of nourishing yourself. Samadhi alone is nourishing, but samadhi combined with loving kindness is doubly nourishing. Because not only do you get all the well-being of having a calm nervous system and knowing what that's like to feel whole and feel complete inside. But if you actually find samadhi through loving kindness, then you're purifying the relationship channel, how you relate to others and relate to yourself, which is another type of deep absorption. Even if you just taste it in one sincere phrase, it's hard to really taste it in one phrase, but you might saying one phrase, really taste it. But if you can actually get a few in a row and really relax into it, you start to actually educate yourself about relaxed, simple, humble love about well-being born from inside. And that that could happen with love. And that love could be pure and whole. And that it comes from your heart. And that it's not somebody else's heart, some other saint's heart. We could you know your own heart's capacity. It's beautiful. It's beautiful to actually know that from within. That your heart, actually can be boundlessly sacred, boundlessly loving, boundlessly radiant, humble, fluid. It will happen to all of us if we're patient and we're just steady. It deepens, it broadens. And it changes your worldview to be content on that level inside to know your own heart, the you know, the purity of your own heart within. Now, it's, it's not somebody else out there who's impressive. It's actually your own liberated heart that might be the most beautiful thing you've ever known. So that's what I would recommend that. you know We're midpoint in the retreat. We have many more days to come. There'll be many waves. And so again, don't start chasing it but see if you can invite it. I'm going to post these five factors so you don't have to remember them, get them in your cognitive brain. But they're basically about contentment, inspiration, blended with the ability to focus and sustain your attention. Welcome them, blend them, cultivate them. And then you'll see that your own heart can absorb into loving kindness and this beautiful meeting of loving-kindness and absorption, loving-kindness and samadhi. You get to know that. And again, I promise it's already happening. <laughs> so it's more about uh, welcoming it further as opposed to one day it will happen. It's already happening for you all. And it's like that gentle tide that's rising every moment you're here. I have a lot of faith in that. So let's just sit for a moment, let the words settle. Sit in a way that allows your body to be at ease. Be inspired by these practices Be inspired by these conditions. What a beautiful opportunity. And point your heart toward yourself or a cherished being and be satisfied in loving them appreciating them. Let your own samadhi come and go. It will come in waves and relax. Just keep simple, one simple phrase at a time while sitting and walking. Enjoy walking practice, and then in the last sit of the evening, we're going to have a, a silent sit um, I'm Going to forego the chanting tonight, just again to support a little more of this quietness of wholeheartedness. So we'll pick up the chanting again tomorrow. Enjoy your walking, enjoy your night.